Hello everybody. Two women met who hadn't seen each other for quite a while and one said to the other, I got married. And the other one said, well, that's good. She said, oh, it's not so good. He's mean. Oh, that's bad. Well, not so bad. He bought me a house. Well, that's good. Not so good. It burnt down. Oh, that's bad. Not so bad. He was in it. The point of that joke, let's say it's funny, is that sometimes we have to hear the whole story in order to know the story. And nothing could be more true than when we take today's lesson and place it within the context of the six chapters of the book of Ephesians. We've had the splendor of the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the believers in the southwest of Turkey. He crescendos with chapter 3, verse 20. Let me read it to you slowly. It's so wonderful. Now, all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. I'll just say that phrase again because sometimes we read it so quickly, we miss the weight of it. He wants to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then the mood changes. The focus has shifted from God in his glory to us in our realities. He starts the second half of the letter with, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. Now, Chris and Josh have already beautifully laid a foundation of that kind of living for us. Dotted through the second half of the letter are Paul's descriptors of what a life worthy of our call might entail. We are to be patient, unified, truth-speaking, truth-filled, kind, loving, compassionate, forgiving, thankful, good, righteous, and worshipful. And I want to sum all of those up by saying we are to be have clean hearts, clean minds, clean mouths and clean hands. And then we get to chapter 5, verse 21, and it says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why is submit put with Christ in that verse? I think I covered this in an earlier message during COVID, but let me repeat it for you. The best picture of biblical submission is Christ in the garden where he says, in my weakness, will you take this cup of suffering from me? In other words, he's saying, you have a strong plan for redemption, but will you submit your strong plan to my weakness? And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. In other words, I am going to submit my weakness to your strength. So we submit to one another. And when we do, we are honoring what Christ did for us through his own act of submission. Other verses that help us understand submission more are found in Romans 12 verse 10. We honor each other by deferring to one another. Philippians chapter two verses three and four. In humility, we are to consider others better than ourselves. This is a deep seated conviction about the worth of the other. It is looking at another person through the lens of the kingdom. And then we get to verse 22, which starts with these words, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
Now, just in case wives have missed the general instruction to all believers of verse 21, and then this specific one in verse 22, in verse 24, Paul backs up and he says to them, submit to your husbands in everything. Interestingly, these two usages of the word submit aren't in the actual Greek. Um, they, it just says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to husbands. And again in verse 24, wives to husbands. Um, it's definitely there by inference and translators have added the word in for context. I just don't think it's worth making a big deal out of this, but I do think it's worth noting Paul's light touch on the matter. Reading on, men are told to love their wives with the same devotion that Christ loves the church and indeed to love their wives as they love themselves. Now this letter is to the believers so we can safely assume that they've been receiving Christ's teachings which would have included that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and mind and then our neighbours as ourselves. We are to love others to the extent that we have uh, learnt to love ourselves. So Paul's instruction to husbands comes to them as a reinforcement of Christ's teaching. Verses 22 to 33 of chapter 5, they're intriguing, they're challenging, and they have been for a long time crawling with invitations for ridicule or rebellion by women, for misuse and even abuse by men. I just want to sum them up by, uh, in this way. To prepare for this message, I've read the six chapters in one hit several times, because if I'm going to preach on a few verses, I want to set them into the whole story. If you want to get the story, you need to know the story. And um, as I'm reading through and I get to these verses, 22 to 33, it feels to me that we're not to make it more complicated than this, that Paul is saying to women, could you get over yourselves? And to men, could you deal with your issues? I think if we keep it that light, it prevents us from going down some rabbit holes. Having said that, what are we to make of these verses? The worship center of Ephesus was the temple of Diana. The spirit over this area was the worship of the female form. Tending this temple were young virgins, and eunuchs who had to self-emasculate. We have a picture there of the perfect female form and an impotent male form. We don't have to work hard at seeing parallels in today's culture. The worship of the female form by women is destructive. It causes physical distortions. It causes mental and emotional bondage and even loss of life. Men lose manhood through pornography, the culture of bullying and intimidation, and even abuse by divine right. For men and women alike, the feeding of destructive passions was and is a huge impediment to the formation of us as new creations in Christ. It's the old battle of self versus the new creation. Gender distortions were clearly over the air in southwest Turkey and they are over the air today. I want to simply say to you, it's my conviction now that those 12 verses needed to be written. Then to the children, Paul says, honour your parents, 
to the little Jewish kids, this would not have been new news, but it would have been to the little Greek kids. And then to fathers figuring out what, to, what this new creation might mean for them, he says, don't take your frustrations out on your kids. To slaves and masters, he says, yes, you are slaves and masters in the socioeconomics of the land. When it comes to the kingdom, here's the standard. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We defer to one another. We consider the other better than ourselves. From chapter 4, verse 17 to chapter 6, verse 9, Paul is helping a distorted culture live redeemed lives, have redeemed homes, and enjoy redeemed fellowship. We are to be people of clean hearts, clean minds, clean mouths, clean hands. Men submit to men and women. Women submit to men and women. And if married, wives are to submit to husbands instead of worshipping their own form. And husbands, as well as submitting to wives because they're new creation men, are to have appropriate levels of self-love in order to fully love their wives as Christ loves. As one linguist said, the hearers of Paul's letter would not have had the problem with his language that we have today. And I do think that is the sweetest sentence. So why is there such a to-do over these few verses and the similar verses that Paul wrote to the believers in Colossae? If you go onto Google Maps, you can learn that Colossae is, uh, well, it's three hours drive in a car east from Ephesus, which is why I'm talking about the spirit over southwest Turkey. He wrote a similar series of instructions to those believers. Some of the answer to that question is found by the inclusion of the word head. Paul included the word head. The Greek word that has been translated head is kephale. It is used 75 times in the New Testament and over 60 of those times, it really just refers to the thing on top of our shoulders. I want to look at three ways this word has been applied or interpreted. But first, let me just say a few other things. In many of the Christian homes of the 50s and 60s, a plaque would be over the doorway and it went like this. Christ is the head of this home, the unseen guest at every meal and the silent listener to every conversation. I actually went into Google Images and can you believe it's still around everywhere, including that lovely little retro plaque that certainly is in my memory. The 60s were a sociological tsunami in many Western nations, and it included a deeply needed first wave of feminism. The response of the church should have been a spirit-led examination of the way that the modern church was largely reflecting the curse of the fall rather than the work of the cross in its behavior towards women. In fact, if the modern church had led the way, the world would be a better place today, a very different place. Let me just remind you of the curse that we read in Genesis 3. It was that there would be enmity between men and women and that the desire in a woman would be for her husband to rule over her. Instead of that redemptive response, a phrase began to be heard, male headship, or women could function as long as, as, long as it was under male headship. 
This phrase is not even in the Bible, but I'm hearing it for the first time as a 20-year-old eager to please God. So I bought that teaching totally and utterly. Looking back, there was a good deal of male headship teaching going on, but I can't recall anyone talking about how anything or anyone that replaces Christ as head in our lives is actually an idol. It took a long time before the Holy Spirit got through to me and began to heal my heart and mind about this matter. Male headship teaching is simply incredibly dangerous. It thumbs its nose at Christ's death and resurrection, which broke the curse of sin and death. So let's get back to Paul's use of this word, kephale. There are three ways that I have heard it applied. The first has been to support the idea that husbands are to be the spiritual authorities over their wives. This has produced abuses, suppressions of giftings in women, and much foolishness such as, he might be the head, but I'm the neck that wags the head. I really don't like it when I hear that. It is terribly dishonoring and insulting to men and it trains, even requires women to be manipulative. Make no mistake, every believer is under authority. Christ alone is Lord of all and all things are under his authority as Paul reminds us not once but four times in Ephesians, three of those times using the word kephale. Under his lordship, and I thank my late mentor, Dr. Lois Burkett, for this simple understanding, she said, we have positional authorities, spiritual authorities, and practical authorities. Further, like the centurion of old, we only successfully exercise authority when we ourselves are under authority. People who are not under authority are simply not under the Lordship of Christ. As a final and sober reflection on the dangers of this interpretation, a husband does run the risk of usurping the Lordship of Christ in his wife's life, um, even innocently, and she runs the risk of allowing it. The second way I've heard it applied um, is that it doesn't mean authority, it means source. So uh, when women, when a woman was to be created, God put Adam into a, into a deep sleep, took a rib, formed a woman. So um, man is the source of woman. This usage of kephale has gained a good deal of traction over the past few decades. However, again through research, I understand that this usage has only occurred in modern Greek. As I understand it, through reading the work of linguists, neither Paul nor his readers would have used kephale to mean source. The third one is that it means what it means for most of the other usages in the New Testament, which is the thing on top of our necks. The challenges with applying kephale to mean that, to mean that the husbands are the literal heads over wives are profound. So work with me here. Here's a woman. Uh, she's managed to get an education. She's managed to get a career. She's making some good and logical decisions in life. She's got a driver's license. She can drive a car and she knows when to turn right and when to turn left. So she's got quite a good functional kephale. But then she gets married. And now does she take off her kephale so that her husband can become her kephale? And if we go with this literal translation, 
Do we get male kephalase floating around looking for female bodies? I tried to put a sentence together on that and it just went weird very quickly. Also, if we take head literally, we probably need to be consistent and Josh did a great job of helping us see this last Sunday. We're a few verses away from teaching on the armour of God. Do we gaff tape a couple of Bibles to our ankles and put a helmet on our head next time we go to Bunnings? And in chapter 5 verse 19 we're told that when we come together we're to speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Next time we have a church picnic do we greet each other in the key of G? Applying a literal translation of kephale is kind of ridiculous, but it is behind some attitudes in the church at large which are voiced like this. Women aren't logical. They're too emotional. Men are the decision makers. Women are the heart, while a man is the mind. Uh, there is so much wrong with all of those statements. So what are we to do with this whole deal of spiritual songs and swords and shields and helmets and heads and bodies? The answer is that they are word pictures and if we know the whole story, we will get the story. Ephesians is an incredible letter in which Paul uses these word pictures to express high and holy matters about how we behave in fellowship, how we behave in our homes, how we behave in our workplaces, and how we live Christian lives, lives of victory. No matter our race, our marital status, our gender, our position in society, or our family dynamics, we are to submit to one another, we are to be people of clean hearts, clean minds, clean mouths and clean hands. And the idea of loving another selflessly in no way diminishes us. Men and women, husbands, wives, children, employers, employees are to live lives worthy of our calling to be new creations in Christ. And so it is that we of chapters 4, 5 and 6 are now one with the God of chapters 1, 2 and 3 in grace-drenched unity. If we know the whole story, we'll get the story. I'll be online tomorrow night with Josh to enjoy further conversations if you'd like them, but for now, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in the matter of standards of behaviour for us as new creations in Christ, we need you. Help us to grasp the whole story in order to get your story. We choose to raise your son, Jesus Christ, as the head of all things, Lord over our homes, Lord over our marriages, Lord over our relationships, Lord over our church, Lord over our minds, Lord over our behaviours in all areas of life. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Till next time.